2013 or in mm. 1970. Cool. It only appears once every decade or something. There you go. Well, great news. Small talk has ended. The recording is now going. This is exciting. Thanks, everybody, for coming. So let's get straight to it. What do judges want? And uh, I don't know. I, this is more of like a we ask. How actually care what judges want? Let's start there. How many out there are actually competing or planning, planning to compete this year? Where, you know, I think we would all be lying. <laughs> we would all be lying if we said we didn't care what judges wow. want because well, there you know, we got some people out there. You get a you know Don has his, had his third lesson. What <laughs> David? Sorry, had his third lesson. He's not really interested in what judges want. I don't think he's ready to compete just yet. Not yet. Yeah. Mike is planning on competing. Tony does not compete, but knowing what judges want is good to know, yeah. It's one of those yeah. things, you know. Once you compete once or twice, it's an addiction, and you're it, not going to be able to stop. It's kind of it's bad that way. <laughs> Ashby's competing for the first time at Dunedin. Yeah, they cool. got quite a weekend planned in March, don't they? they a whole thing going on. I've been getting emails. And they really do, yeah. It sounds like there's really cool stuff happening down there. There's one pocket in Florida. Yes. And uh, lots of amazing piping happening there. Well, it's what's really funny is that if you drive through that area, you know, it's a lot like other sort of Scottish settled areas here in the east in, you know, New Jersey or New York or North Carolina. It's like it, all the street names are like Highland Avenue and, you know, <laughs> all these different Scottish names for the streets. It's very funny. All the way down south like that. That's very cool. <clears throat> so, I, I mean... What do judges want? Eric is getting the ball rolling here. He says judges want bribes. Yeah. Hugs uh, and a cup of tea. I thought that's what all judges want, isn't it? Just, just want to be loved. They, Yep, they want to be loved, they want to be respected, and they want that cup of tea. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, what do judges, you know, let's start with the basis of what judges are going to be listening for. Um, when they listen to you compete, I could I could uh, list, they, the I could list there's a, there's a very short list um, according to the rules of the EUSPBA. Here, I can just my what are, what are the rules? We can start with that. Well, that's it. What are the rules? That that list right there is all that appears in the rules of the EUSPBA. So that's when you show up to there compete. That's what the judges want. <laughs> yeah. Those four things. Tempos, it's so funny that uh, tempos and breaks between tunes comes before tuning, execution, and expression. <laughs> is that true? Is that actually true? I th this is the list. I just cut and pasted it from the from the rule book. Wow. So there so. you go. Um, yeah, I would say I would say more realistically, right? That you could break what the judges are listening to into. Uh, Two through four. It really kind of sums it up, right? Right. I think so. Um, yeah. I would, here's the way I would explain it, Then Let's amend this to make it simple. Is we have, um, we have technique, musicality, and instrument quality. Okay? And that includes tuning and tonal production. Okay, so technique is stuff like no crossing noises, nice crisp grace noting, correct embellishments, and all that good stuff. 
Uh, musicality pertains to expression, holding and cutting your dot notes and cut notes, um, you know, uh, especially in the more advanced levels, showing a good um, phrasing, sometimes called light and shade. And then uh, the third major thing is the quality of the instrument. How well are you tuned? And how good does your instrument sound overall? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, well, that's, I think they're the same. Well, I think it's an overall package, right? Your instrument sound as well as what you're able to produce on it, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean the, quali- the overall quality of sound. So, yeah, Gary... The answer, do I mean quality of sound or instrument sound? The answer is yes. (laughs) Both things, right? How good does your bagpipe sound? Picture Jimi Hendrix on one of those toy guitars that you get from Toys R Us. Right? He probably shredded pretty good, though, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, he could lay it down. And I think you hear that sometimes as a judge, is you hear these players with all sorts of aptitude, but their instrument sounds bad. Absolutely. And they have overlooked one of the major qualities that um, we are going to have to look at as a judge in order to, in order to adjudicate. Yeah, and one you know one of the uh, sort of big aphorisms you hear in piping, you've heard it for you know for years. Anybody who's been around us, you know, your instrument is like ninety percent of your performance. You know, people will tell, will say that. You know, if you've got a great sounding instrument, and you're able to produce really good sound, that goes a long way toward producing a good performance. Really, that's what it's saying. So if you start there, I think yeah, I mean you can yeah. you can you can you can splice it you know in a lot of different ways. But that's that's the that's the thing that you hear that bounced around a lot. That uh, a really good sound is really sort of like the most important thing. You know, and good. you know it's true and it's not true sometimes. You know, and um, we'll see. Yep, and Nate sums it up here. A judge wants a good sounding instrument, uh, and then playing a tune with good fundamentals. It's as simple as that. Um, And then, of course, we can get into the details, and we will do that. And then Siri's asking a great question. Do they take into consideration your deportment, or in other words, how well you're dressed or how well you look? And the answer is, theoretically, that should not enter into the result. However, there's definitely a a strong argument that... You have to march and things like that, right? So you have to actually do things, wear things. So that's technically a part of your performance. And, you know, according to your yeah, and you do have to dress. Yeah, you have to dress according to the regulation. The USPBA has strict regulation for men and slightly less strict for women. And then, um, you know, you do have to dress to the regulation. But, you know, uh, theoretically, if my tie is pressed better than Vin's tie, it should have no bearing mm-hmm. on the result. Although, right? Although um, a lot of times, looking sharp helps. Uh, at least subconsciously, will help the judge uh, lean in your favor. Absolutely. It's, it just, smart it just and it confident. makes the whole thing received better. You know, like if you're if you're looking good and you're, you know, deporting yourself well, it's like it just the whole thing is just received better. The judge is in a better state to receive whatever you musically. You know. It's one of those things, right? It's one of those things. If I'm judging, I get annoyed by two things. I get annoyed by people who clear, clearly don't care what they look like. For example, Paul's saying some people hate sunglasses. I absolutely hate sunglasses. I always take mine off when I compete. Um, and just not caring how you look or looking like a, a boob, that's a technical term, uh, it's B-O-O-B, looking like a boob uh, is uh, not cool. I don't like it. 
I think it's, you know, sort of, it seems disrespectful to the art form. And then on the flip side of things, the other thing that really annoys me is people that try too hard to look good when they're performing. Both ends of the spectrum are tedious, right? And what we really want to see is people with a respect for the uniform showing up, looking fairly well, and then, and then focusing on the music. Yeah. I've heard Jack Lee say he hates it when people don't wear Glengarry. You know, half joking. I hate that too. Probably half serious, you know? It's like a little bit of, you know, when somebody shows up without a hat on, you're like, eh, whatever. You know? So already your, your judge is well, in technically, a uh, to receive what you're going to play, you know? Mm-hmm. And technically, uh, it's grounds for disqualification if you don't wear Glengarry, um, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's not one of those things you want to do, but yeah. I think, I'm pretty sure, Vin, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure Highland dress, including headwear, is part of the rules. I think it's been clarified you know, over the years in all associations that it is part of the overall Highland wear. It was ambiguous in a couple of associations. I think the RSPBA had a very weird sort of wording of it. We fixed that. So, um, yeah. So yeah. My question is, here's a, good, here's, a, here's, a be, here's a better question. Is it appropriate while competing indoors to wear a Glengarry? This is where it gets sort of finer in terms of proper proper attire, you know, when you're wearing regulation sort of uniform, I guess. It gets a little... Yeah, you still have to wear the Glengarry. You wear the Glengarry indoor or outdoors. Yeah. yeah. From a military perspective, uh, I think it's appropriate to take off one's hat when indoors, but it's just a uh, could have died a long time ago. Who knows? Yeah. Saluting too. Um, I'm not a big fan of the salute unless you are definitively, um, you know a service member of some kind. Uh, so like, for example, myself, I would never salute uh, because I'm just a civilian player. I don't pertain to the military in any way. Um, I kind of dislike, you know, players who are clearly civilian given like a big old goofy salute. Um, you know, just kind of cheesy. I don't know why we're talking about this, but. <laughs> this is just a part part of the whole. Well, this is you know it's it's part of the package, right? The, the visuals count. They really do. Um, you know it, how you carry yourself and how you're dressed and how you look actually is a part of your performance. You know the way that's the way it's set up anyway. That's our system and that's that's what it is. You know the art form requires you to, you know, behave in a certain way, dress a certain way. You know. Thank thank goodness well, they don't I mean, have care requirements because I'd I'd lose every time I'd be disqualified. So. You definitely would, yeah. <laughs> um, see, and now, like, and then on the flip side, if you curtsy, you get bonus points. <laughs> Siri curtsied by accident. Well, that's a happy accident. I'm just kidding. I'm joking around, right? There's no bonus points for curtsying. <laughs> um, okay, so what do judges want? Technique, musicality, instrument quality. <clears throat> All of these things pertain to a strong musical performance. And I think that the bottom line is the judge is going to rank the players in the field based on who had the strongest musical performance relative to the other people in the class. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how you define that, um, how you define that is somewhat subjective, right? 
it's possible and completely reasonable for a certain judge to focus more on technique than um, you know than on instrument quality. And then a judge like myself, I tend to focus a lot on instrument quality. I'm I'm way heavier on instrument quality than other judges uh, might be, and that's perfectly perfectly reasonable. And it all has to do with how the judge defines. Um, you know, musical prowess or musical output. It all has right. to do with so how the way that. Uh, what was that? Last week we were talking about that. Like you know, the, the problem really is, is something. Some judges are going to weigh, you know, A heavier than C or C heavier than B, and it's different across the spectrum. So you never really know where you stand. If you do any of those things well, you know, they might may or may not help your performance on that given day for that judge. Because you have no idea how how they're considering your superior musicality <laughs> versus your sort of maybe suspect right. bagpipe, you know. So. Yep, absolutely. Um, Paul's got a great question. Um, sorry, let me turn that off. Paul's got a great question. Would a simple tune get less points than a more difficult tune in the lower levels? The answer is. Um, Definitely not. If both performances were truly equal, a more difficult tune would do better. But that's rarely the case, especially in the lower levels. And that's part of that's part of this, the game strategy, right? You know, you're you're competing at whatever level you're at, and you know, you think you're you know you're you're doing well. You know, picking say a more difficult tune for the for the grade and then actually pulling it off might weigh heavily in your favor. Because of the subjective nature of the judging, you know, um, that just might just sort of way, you know push you a little bit further forward than someone else who might be doing the same things equally as well. You know? So. Um, yeah. Yep. So it's not necessarily the case one way or the other. I mean, again, it's all going to be put together: technique, musicality, instrument quality, this uh, the difficulty of the tune. It doesn't really matter unless you get to the point where player, you know, player A and player B have excellent technique, musicality, and instruments, but one musician uh, played a more difficult selection than the other, you, you would have to maybe weigh that in. So, um, yeah. so there I you go. It's, and then, it's not really a matter of points either, you know. I don't think so. There, some judges have their own sort of little point scoring system for things like that, but generally there is no hard and fast system. It's not like you're getting a certain amount of points for a difficulty level, you know, in your tune. So you get fewer of them if you play something simpler. You know, that's not the way it works, unfortunately. I mean, that's, you know, it would be nice if it was that concrete, but it's not. Cool, yeah. Series question is up next. Di what are the differences between Scottish and U.S. judges' preferences? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there's no definitive answer there. I feel like I'm about to sneeze, so beware. Um, there's no definitive difference there, but having lots of experience on both sides, I feel like the Scots, in general, have a far better rounded, uh, a far better rounded uh, sense of uh, how to adjudicate performances than the average, you know, U.S. judge. I feel like U.S. judges um, tend to be very uh, technique driven uh, you know and they undervalue the quality of an instrument for sure and this is just a stereotype 
This is not true of all U.S. judges, okay? This is just um, my vague, it's, and it's very general experience. So like, you know, technique heavy, uh, musicality heavy, and then they pr don't value the instrument nearly as much. That's been my experience. Um, and then when you get to Scotland, it's a much more well-rounded, open-minded view of performances. This is my opinion and my experience, but you know, if you miss an E doubling, right? Um, but everything else was really, really immaculate, you're far more likely to be rewarded for that uh, in Scotland than you would be here. And again, I'm stereotyping. Not true of everybody. Um, so, but that's a great question. There are differences in style throughout the world, right? For sure, no doubt about it. Yeah, and how it's, much and, does? Yeah, and is yeah, it the product of that does, style? Is the judging is is, much, is as much a product of that style as anything else? You know, and right? It, and it's yeah. like a feedback loop. You know, so the judges are judging a certain style, rewarding a certain style. So players tend to increase their uh, push toward that style, and so you get this sort of, you know, thing that we can classify as Scottish playing, you know, or something like that, you know, or U.S. playing. You know, I think you know having that open mind actually lends itself to that, you know, like being able to sort of experiment or try different things and be rewarded for it will inevitably, you know, bring about some sort of change, hopefully, I think, anyway. Yep. Uh, Julia says, how often do performers perform only for certain judges because of how that judge grades? Um, mm -hmm. It's very rare. It's very rare for that to happen. Yeah. You, you have uh, no but it happens. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah, it I mean, does it, happen, it, though. It does happen, yeah. I mean, if you have a choice of games and you know who's judging where, I mean, you could sort of pick and choose where you go, I suppose. But um, I definitely yeah. do that. Uh, I definitely do that a little bit. And, you know, it's like, well, I could drive to this professional contest that's eight hours away, uh, you know, but the panel is not, you know, likely to favor me. And uh, a, a lot of times, um, and this is a... I think it pertains more to higher professional levels. Like a lot of times there's not very much enrollment. Like a lot of times it's not judges. It's the size of the field is not big enough um, to merit, uh, you know, like a big journey to get there. Mm -hmm. I know I've, I've made decisions to go to contests because of who's judging. Like, you know, say, you know, a contest will bring in Jack Taylor for, you know, that day. And it's like, you know, if you get a chance to like play your keyboard for Jack Taylor, it doesn't come around that often. So why not, right? You know, you could go right. a little. And out that's of another great point. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh. a great point. Um, <clears throat> Paul says th this is an interesting one. I had a judge who did not like the setting I was playing and graded me down. Other judges did not, so I would not play in front of her. Well, that goes two ways, Paul. If your setting is bad, okay, that's something you need to address. Um, with that said, though, like, for example, <clears throat> uh, if I'm playing uh, a clearly, you know, well-known setting of a tune uh, and a judge were to judge me differently because of my choice of setting, um, that is completely unethical and immoral. Um, Without that actually not making it known in some way. I mean, you know, a lot of judges will make mention of that on the sheet, maybe, if, they, if your setting is a little too strange or too obscure or something and, um, and knock you for it maybe but or maybe not just read not, they're not sort of knocking you they're not rewarding you which is kind of like the whole right. point of the system where you're, you're not getting rewarded so for, Paul, the, 
experimentation factor maybe you know mm -hmm. paul says it was if it was a standard pbrock society setting um, then it would be unethical and immoral um, to to um, not give you a fair result based on the setting um, granted it's fully within the judge's rights to mention it like you know uh, for you know by the way i much prefer the angus Mackay setting um, you know talk to me later if you'd like to learn more about this setting or and, and i would hope you know, that the you judges, actually mentioned that to the judge when you went up there if you were playing something that maybe that judge had not heard before or has not heard that often you actually mentioned that you were playing a certain setting from a certain source that at least calling their attention and you know a good pbrock judge will know what you're talking about or should and uh and be ready for just that, because you know? a just because a judge tells you to listen to a tape of it being played differently, that does not mean they change their result uh, based on the fact you're playing a different setting. In other words, uh, just because judges say something to you doesn't mean that uh, they're evil people and they change, you know, and that it affected their result. I say stuff like that all the time. Like this setting is, uh, you know, this setting is not a good setting of this tune. Uh, I'll say, I'll write that on a sheet, but um, but it wouldn't affect my result per se. Yeah, because you're still me you're still measuring the performances based on that list, right? Technique, musicality, instrument quality, um, your particular musical tastes. You know, may, for some judges weigh heavily than in other judges. For other judges, you know, sometimes their particular if a, a good judge, I would think. You know, in my mind, a good judge is somebody who's able to recognize their own tastes and actually be able to move beyond them and, and embrace, you know, other other musical expressions that would not necessarily be something they would like, you know, but still be able to evaluate it accurately based on these kinds of measures, you know. Yeah, uh, so, Paul, um, I have no idea how you would know you were tied for a medal or not. That's also ethically not a good thing right um to be discussing that and then uh yeah they told oh great they told you and then if it's true that you playing the pbrock society setting instead of what the judge wanted to hear is actually what prevented you from getting a prize that is a huge problem and it's part of the reason why uh you know it's part of the reason why certain pipe band associations are running around screaming wondering why nobody wants to participate anymore uh, it's because um, that's complete garbage. Yeah. You know, Mike that says, said, though, however, however though, I, I would say that there are mistakes, quote unquote mistakes, in some of these Pubrock society, society tunes that are generally sort of accepted to some, be something that any no one would play. You know, like, and it's usually just minor things like grace notes and, you know, a note in an A phrase or something. And, and it's, but, you know, commonly the tune is heard, say, so this other way. That, uh, so what the tune is this considered awesome. not very good that way uh, from that perspective. But it's a legitimate source. That's a legitimate setting. And I don't think that that should be a factor, really. And that, I was asking Paul what tune it was. Ken Campbell's Gathering. Uh, I'm not aware of any uh, drastic Pierrot Society. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty straightforward. So, um, yeah, Paul, that's garbage. I am sorry that happened to you. It happens. It happens too often. Man. 
Uh, Mike says, I am going to choose more standard settings for competition and early PBROC settings for performance. Uh, I think I know what you mean there. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, for me, it's not worth being a wild man when I compete. It's not worth it. I'd rather win playing um, a standard setting than deal with all the BS that would come with, you know, trying to be really creative or playing weird settings or what have you of tunes. So that's a good philosophy. Uh, it's a good yeah. philosophy to take. Although, although I think you know, it, it works both ways. Like I think the judging itself, you know, and, and I've heard arguments about this is that you know the, the problem really is because it's, it's a level of sort of knowledge on the judging side that needs to be sort of pushed further. So if you're playing a legitimate setting from some other source that is a an accepted part of the repertoire, the judge's responsibility is to know what that is and to be able to evaluate it accurately. And if they're not, then that's, you know, that's a revealing thing, right? And so that, I think, you know, as players too, we often kind of don't think that we have this kind of power, but we kind of do to really sort of push the judging in, in a legitimate direction that I think, you know, would benefit everybody. Yeah, we're getting dangerously close to talking about uh, <laughs> problems with uh, how judges are certified. So let's change topics. <laughs> yeah, uh, Paul, it's absolutely good to bring the setting with you yes. and put it in front of the judge and say, I am very consciously playing this setting and you will like it. I will make you like it. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, Tony says, here we go. Thank you, Tony. I've been a steward for various judges and they truly seem to want to help the players improve. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true, but then uh, for sure, I think the problem for me comes, uh, comes down to when a judge has a subjective point of view and they impose that view on the field of competitors. Mm -hmm. Especially for in the example, lower grades, right? Because they feel a lot more freer to do it at the lower grades, at the lower levels, and that's, that's where you sort of get really risky there. A great example is in tempo, right? Ju you know, some judges just, they hate slow tempos. And so I'm not going to give anybody a prize who doesn't play fast tempo. But it's like um, a lot of people, certainly the vast, vast majority of my students are encouraged to present tunes at a slower tempo so that they can focus on getting the technique, musicality, and instrument quality without being overwhelmed uh, by going so fast, right? And it's bad when a judge imposes that sort of sub, uh, subjective idea that there's a certain tempo things have to be played, right? That may, you may or may not feel that way, and you may or may not teach that way, but it's not right to judge that way. That's my, uh, that's my opinion on things. And the same would go for settings with tunes. And I think you're right, Tony. I think that I think people wouldn't do it. I don't think judges are bad people, uh, uh, at least 99% of the time, right? Judges are certainly not bad people, and they, you know, 99% of the time, they definitely want to see players improve. Um, but I think you can, even without really putting the thought, you know, even without the thought crossing your mind, um, judges need to be taught, um, what do they call that? Uh, it's basically an ethics thing, which is, you, ha you know, you have to be conscious of your own subjective preferences and eliminate that from your decision in who wins a contest. You have mm -hmm. to learn to do that. Yeah, right, it's a bias. 
and how how you deal with bias, uh, you know, definitely determines. Um, and, and, and the problem really is because we don't we're not even aware of our own biases a lot of the times, and so a judge who thinks they're evaluating performance, you know, based on tempo, and they want something a little bit faster, thinks they're being you know a quality evaluator <laughs> or adjudicator when they're doing so, but really what they're doing is indulging their own biases and without even realizing. And that's really, right. that's really the fine line. I think you really, I mean, you have to be more aware of yourself as a judge, especially. I think that's your main goal. I think rather than worrying about what music you're hearing, you have to be to be aware of, you know, yourself as a person, what you know, be confident, um, realize what you don't know, you know, address that as well as be aware of your own, where your biases lie. You have to. Actually, the tempo is a good, good is a good example because I heard, you know, the winter storm contests. I heard there was a, a huge variety in tempo and presentation in those MSRs, and you know, some people, a lot of people playing very slow and very sort of, you know, careful, and a lot of people just sort of letting it fly. And there's that's a legitimate performance, you know, either way, you know, it's a, it's a legitimate presentation of those tunes. There's a lot of tunes that lend themselves to a, a large tempo range. And it's an equally valid way to play it slow, or equally valid to play it quick and upbeat. You know, knowing where that, knowing what, knowing that is, is I think part of being a musician. So, you know, trust that, and trust what the judge is telling you there. And it's good. It's like, and and uh, yeah, Tony, I muted my microphone in time for the sneeze. At least that time. Thank you. Yeah. So, so it's a it's a delicate thing. It's one of those things that um, it's one of those things where uh, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of ego involved with judging as well. Not not to say all ego is bad, but it, there's ego there too. Whereas when saying there are you know huge weaknesses in the way that the judging panel operates, I'm not criticizing judges as individuals, right? It's just um, it's just these pitfalls uh, that anyone can fall into that you have to right. watch out for. Now, it's the system that exists a, that allows them to fall into it. You know, a system that exists just is set up for these kinds of traps. Yeah, and you just have to be. I think judges need to be educated about those sorts of things um, as well. And and um, and there you go. Yeah, MSR stands for March Stress Bay and Real, and that's a very common uh, competitive. Um, set that will be played. Um, so that's what that is. Uh, let's see. I had a thought. Oh, so how does this apply to you? Here's a, uh, on the flip side of things, right? Um, it also, just understanding this phenomenon can be really valuable when it comes to reading score sheets. For example, if there's anything clearly subjective um, or erroneous on your score sheet, it's really important to ignore that stuff. Right when I read a score sheet from a judge, I ignore all all the subjective things that don't necessarily have any foundation in obje objectivity, and I focus on the things that are objectively there. Like whoop, he's talking about crossing noises there, or oh, it seems like I made a mistake, and that's clearly why I wasn't even in the running. Or um, you know, oh, it says my F was sharp. Okay, these are great objective things. Uh, that I can work with. And then some of the more subjective things, uh, you just have to be careful or you have to translate them into something that you can use. You know, and the, uh, translating a score sheet is 
sort of an art form unto itself. Yeah, every now and then you get a comment that, you know, a lot of times, most of the things that the judges are going to pick out is going to be stuff that you kind of already know you need work on, you know? Um, so yes. it's no surprise, right? So it's just a matter of, you know, you know, honing those and getting rid of the crossing noises and, you know, maybe clear, clearing up your technique that will maybe place you higher, you know, and the judge won't necessarily have anything to write down and, you know, and your performance will be something, you know, in the prize list. But, you know, every now and then a judge will write something that you're like, oh, am I really doing that? You know, oh, and then you sort of think about it a little bit and there's just, you know, maybe one part where maybe you're clipping, you know, a phrase or something and you weren't really aware of it or it wasn't, it, it was maybe not as extreme as you thought it was, but more extreme enough to be noticed by someone listening. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just a little, you know, these little things that pop out and, and, and it gives you something to sort of focus on, you know. A lot of times you'll, I'll, I'll scratch my head and say, well, am I really doing that? And then I'll go and check and I, I'm not. So <laughs> you'll be like, okay, well, I don't know what he was hearing, but, you know, maybe it was something else, you know. Maybe there, there's a lot of confusion, too, to, to, to sort of decipher as well. Like maybe that comment is the sort of summary for something else that maybe is going on. So it's, it's more like a little flag that sort of pops up for that one particular part or tune or something. I think you're all right about that. Absolutely. Yep, Tim is uh, making a good point. If you're organized, you would record all of your solo competitions so you could compare what the judge wrote down to what you're able to hear. It's a very good thing to do. Of course, having I, a private I instructor. I've never, I've never done that. You know, it's like the day is so confusing and so sort of chaotic sometimes, you know, that just worrying about like setting up a little recorder to like, you know, when it comes your time is like, you know, I've just never sort of gone that extra, you know. It's like it would be great. You know, I do yeah, I record myself sure. all the time, you know, and it's, it would be great to do that, you know, have these little records of, of your performances, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any uh, questions about judges and stuff um, before we venture towards maybe wrapping up today's discussion? Oh, there's one, Siri. I've been approaching competition as a high-level personal class in the past. This year is my first attempt up in grade three. Going to have to do more. Not sure what a compet is. With new judges trying to play better than last year. Yeah. Any advice? I don't know. I, you're going to have to compete as much as you possibly can. You know, sit down, look at the calendar, and, and no, I wouldn't say you can worry about the judges because you have no control over that. Really, you should be looking at what's possible for you. Um, you know, right. How many times can I compete and where can I go? And then look at the judges and say, well, you know, I'm playing in front of this judge four or five times. <laughs> you know, is that valuable? <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know. Maybe, uh, you know, you could change your calendar a little bit if that's the case. You know, the judges are known well in advance. I saw a question pop up earlier about that. If you go on the EUSPBA website, the games that are listed there usually have the judges listed as well. You don't know who you're going to get, but they're there. You know, it's just basically a list. So there's no different. I don't think they decide until the day, um, usually, when who's judging where and what contests, you know. But I would say I would say you, you just have to really just go for it, just compete as as much as you possibly can. Exposure is a great thing, you know. I think if you, especially if you're going to upgrade yourself in any association system, I think you, you just need to be out there a lot. You know. Mm -hmm. 
David says, how are the grades determined? That's a good question. So um, basically, the way they'll be determined is each association has an entry-level grade. Ours is grade four here in the eastern United States. So uh, the vast majority of people will enter in at the entry-level grade. And then at the end of each season, there's a grading committee that will evaluate results and determine uh, you know, which part of the group should be upgraded to the next grade. And then in some cases, it's more, far more rare, in some cases, uh, the bottom might be downgraded, maybe. That's really not an issue, though. Yeah. I was going to yeah. jump back to Siri's point, too. I would, one of the things that I've often done, especially when I want to venture out and do different games in different areas that I've not, I'm not familiar with, I go on the USB website for previous year's competition results, and I look at the, um, the, the, the size of the field. It always gives you it always gives you the number of competitors competed in any contest. So if you're going to be going to say, you know, you know the the the, 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 the boiling hot desert island games, you're going to be you can go there and see how many people that were competing in your grade last year, which is pretty consistent year to year. Um, and you know maybe try to go for a contest where there's more than maybe five people. You know, if you want to build up points, if that's your goal. You know, if you're going to be doing that, then you've got to go to contests with a lot, a sizable grade in that day. So that would be a good piece of advice there. Mm -hmm. How often do we compete? Um, it's a good question. I mean, optimally, I, I try to compete, you know, 10 times, a dozen times a year. It can be tough in this. I'm finding it very challenging living in this part of the world, um, finding enough opportunities uh, to compete within a reasonable driving distance. I'm just not in a phase in my life where, uh, like for example, uh, Eric Olette, who a lot of you may know, who teaches at, at Dojo U, I mean, he's in a, in a little bit of a more enthusiastic phase than me, and so he's driving eight hours here, up to Ontario, down to USPF, See, for me, I'm not as willing to do that. I'm also not as willing to get up to start a P-Brock at 8 a.m. in the freezing cold anymore either. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I usually try to get, I, I mean, I don't compete as much as I'd like or as much as I probably need to to build up and kind of, you know, get past my performance anxieties. But I, I try to compete at least four or five times a year, four or five games, which is usually, you know, three or four actual performances during the day. So, um, you know, when I, when I do it, you can build up a momentum. I think that's an important thing. It's like, you know, competing once or twice is really kind of just competing once or twice. You know, if you compete more than that, you build up some sort of, you build up a personal momentum where it becomes familiar, becomes sort of commonplace. You, you know what's expected and the performances come easier without any kind of struggle, you know. Um, right. And I tend to go to, to bigger competitions that, you know, I like going to. I look for experiences. I don't necessarily look to compete for experiences. Moon is a great one. Yeah. Great experience. It's freezing cold in the morning, but it's a nice, nice games, nice day. Hi, David. Uh, that is incorrect, actually. In Once you reach the professional grade, which is the very, very top tier of high-level competing, you actually do begin to compete for money, which is pretty cool. There's not a lot of money in it. Um, but uh, anywhere from winning a hundred bucks if you win an event to winning five hundred bucks, and there actually is occasionally some money. 
Yeah. It's enough to buy a dinner maybe at the end of the day. <laughs> not even. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pays for fuel. Not if you're driving eight hours to go to Ontario, that's for sure. All right, let's call it in there, guys. Um, thanks very much for checking out our thing about what judges want. And of course, if there's any major questions, uh, you could always let us know. And we are going to venture towards the hills here, I think. You want to have good luck in your Hope I feel better. <laughs> I feel great. I just sneezed. It's okay. And I have like another sneeze coming eventually, I think. That's why I'm sniffling. Yeah, we're getting close to everyone starting full swing with the game's schedule, so good luck to everyone. All right, yeah, we'll see everybody later. Have a good day. <laughs>